1: roads. Uh, and let's face it, who thinks of roads until one is blocked or in the case of uh, the atmospheric river that we saw in 2021 completely washed away? Well, the folks who help build and maintain the highways throughout our province certainly know the reality of keeping our transportation network running. The work is certainly not going away. And that's why the BC Road Builders are launching a new recruitment drive as they attempt to bolster their ranks. For more on their campaign to attract new skilled workers is BC Road Builders Vice President Matt Pitcairn. Matt, thank you for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff.
1: Uh, an interesting program here, $3.9 million to attract skilled workers to become road builders. Walk me through this uh, this uh, trailer, the simulator, uh, that will be uh, crisscrossing British Columbia.
0: Yeah, happy to. So thank you to this $3.9 million grant opportunity that we've gotten from the province in collaboration with the feds. We're going to be putting together a province-wide talent attraction program to attract folks to our highway maintenance sector and pique their interest in heavy equipment operation. The crown jewel of this outreach tour is going to be a 34-foot trailer that we're going to tow around every section of BC, and inside of it we're going to have five simulators, a snowplow simulator, a heavy equipment operation simulator, and virtual reality stations. And Our intent is to touch as many British Columbians, new immigrants, students, and really pique their interest about the exciting career opportunities we have here in our industry.
1: How much uh, of a challenge is the labor issue moving forward for your organization?
0: So we, our members are very busy right now following the atmospheric river. There's a lot of work to be done, and um, you know, we're managing the work today. Looking in the future, we see some major projects coming offline in the near future, such as the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Coastal GasLink, Tello Bridge, LNG Canada, Site C. There's a lot of labor coming back into the, the workforce here. But really, this this initiative is focused on proactive outreach to future employees. We know in every industry there's a massive amount of retirements coming in the next 5, 10, 15 years. So this talent attraction program is really going to help us get in front of that and hopefully put a career path on individuals' radar that may not have been front and center in the past. Mm -hmm. So. We're, we're doing okay today, but we know challenges are coming for all sectors, and this is our attempt to
1: get in front of that. Um, how much training is required uh, to be be part of the road builders? I know each organization, every private sector company is going to be a little different, but walk me through a little bit in regards to, you know, in regards to the education and preparation that some of these folks would need to, to, to if they wanted to sort of take part in this this type of work.
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, our members, there's a a distinction we use. We we represent horizontal constructors Mm -hmm. uh, versus the vertical, which is more the tower, the residential. So in our field, there's not as many skilled trades. And really, we're looking for individuals with the right attitude. They want to be there. And we can get them trained up and going, you know, on the site and have them move up the ladder as they go. So... We we do our members do a lot of the training on the ground in site safety is absolute number one priority for our folks mm-hmm. but we don't have the same amount of red seal trades as you may see in the vertical sector.
1: Um, in regards to the atmospheric river, uh, it was you know front and center in the news um, just not too long ago, uh, and now is the quiet part but the very important part which is you're actually rebuilding British Columbia rebuilding roads uh walk me through what it's been like over the last you know year or so as as you've tried to you know help uh build some of roads and 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 and, and other uh vital parts of infrastructure walk me through what the last year has been like for your members
0: yeah so i think you know november um 2021 was a real wake-up call and it was you know our, our country was brought to our knees when you had our highways our rail corridors all taken out and it was amazing what our members could do in a short amount of time 35 days Zero lost time accidents. We got the coke, number three, number one, back up and running. But those were temporary measures. And now the real work has begun, and our members are busy building the permanent fixes to those vital corridors. But I think the atmospheric river also told us, you know, that one in 100, one in 250, one in 1,000-year climate event they're becoming more frequent, and they're no longer a one in a millennia. They're maybe a one in a century. So working with Modi and other owners, we're really working at building that more resilient infrastructure of the future so we can withstand future major weather events like the one we saw in November 2021.
1: Mm-hmm. How much longer do you think it'll take uh, for the road builders and other organizations to be to, to fully have built out that infrastructure uh, because of this uh, atmospheric river?
0: I think the the work is well underway, and you know you'll see construction this summer when you travel on those corridors. But you know I believe those should be complete sooner or later. I don't have the exact timeframes in front of me, but I know the work's going quickly and on schedule. And I imagine by next summer, most oh, that work should be in good order.
1: Um, how much of an impact is technology having on 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 your sector? What I mean by that is just you know we always view you build a road a certain way twenty years ago, and there's different materials now, and as you say, with the issue of climate change, uh, different materials will be used. I mean, speak to me a little bit about what that's been like, uh, just in regards to the technology side and the constant change for your industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether it's heavy machinery, whether it's the geomembrane technology, is quickly uh, moving forward. And in British Columbia, you know, our, our, our roads have to withstand some pretty unique challenges. We're not like other parts of the world when you think of how intense our winters are and how intense our summers are becoming. So here we have to build roads that can handle intense colds and intense heats and the fluctuations in between. So I would say, you know, roads in British Columbia and Western Canada in general have to be some of the toughest, well-built roads in the world. And our members and owners, such as Modi and various municipalities, you know, they're very forward-looking, trying to find those products, those techniques, that equipment that's going to build those resilient roads that are going to withstand these harsh conditions.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, In regards to getting back to the grant itself, uh, when will you have this up, up and running?
0: So the, the trailer and the simulators, they're on their way to us. We expect to be delivering or receiving them, I should say, this fall. And next spring, we're going to hit the road. And over the course of uh, this grant period running until 2026, our intention is to hit as many in every corner of British Columbia, engaging as many people as possible to give them a feel of what it's like to work in our industry. And we'll have a jobs portal set up that if they are interested and they want to learn more, we're going to connect them with opportunities right in their own backyard.
1: Well, it sounds like a great program, and it's great to to get uh, young people engaged as well throughout the province. So all the best to you and this program as well. Thanks so much today, Matt.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Jazz. We'll get you on the simulator this fall.
1: Would love to do that. Would love to do that. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Uh, The images from last summer or during Christmas um, at Vancouver International Airport. Lost bags or piles of luggage on arrival? Or how about waits that lasted hours because of poor weather or airlines not having enough staff? It was complete chaos at YVR. Now, with COVID in the rearview mirror, Canadians and British Columbians especially are desperate to travel. It's expected the pent-up desire to get away will result in even higher numbers of British Columbians traveling by air over the coming months. Joining me now to look at summer travel demand is Stephen Jones, who's the CEO of Flair Airlines. Stephen, thank you for joining us today.
2: Oh, no problem. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, what does the summer look like to a CEO of an airline? Uh, there's one thing as a customer, but uh, you know there's a lot of organization that goes into a peak season like this, peak travel season. What are you seeing moving forward into the summer season?
2: Yeah, there are two elements uh, of that for me. I think we've got the operational element and then the sales element. And so if I start first with the operation, mm-hmm. I think this summer is going to be fundamentally different and better than it was last summer. Uh, Some of the whole industry um, just was creaking and groaning as it was coming back from uh, COVID and lack of experienced resources and right across the chain. We've really shifted that up there, and I I see that across the system um, as well. So our on-time performance uh, in April and May was the best that uh, we've seen in the Canadian industry, 82.1% on time in May. Um, Our completion factor for the number of flights that we've scheduled versus those that cancel. We're at 99.5% for the last um, 30 days. So so I think we're going into the summer operationally feeling um, very confident and strong about it or at least the things that are under our control. Um, and then in terms of sales, then we're fortunate as a business that we get very good visibility on forward sales because people book travel in advance. Um, and again, it, I think it's going to be an absolute boomer of a summer in that... Um, yeah, we're at 90% full across our network in April, May, 90% in June, and I think we'll get to 92%, 93% for July and August. So um, this looks like uh, the summer that we've all been waiting for.
1: So will, will, will this summer be the first summer where you will potentially be able to get ahead of your, the COVID numbers?
2: Oh, absolutely. So for Flair, that's um, kind of a different equation than maybe for uh, some of the established carriers. We were growing through COVID, so pre-COVID, Um, At best, I think we had five or six aircraft. It was before my time at the airline. Um, By April of 2021, we had one aircraft flying. Um, This summer, we'll have 21 flying in the peak. And so we're way, way ahead of pre-COVID. But I think as an industry, um, we'll be approaching the COVID, you know, the pre-COVID numbers.
1: What what did COVID do to the industry on a structural level that you think, uh, some may be positive, some may be negative, but are there structural or permanent changes that uh, COVID inflicted on the airline
2: industry? Yeah, so across the, the globe, it, it had a, a massive impact. I was um, in Europe at the beginning of COVID and came here sort of during late COVID. But um, airlines around the world firstly um, sat all their fleet on the ground and then they looked at the fleet and say, which of these are actually aircraft that we want to keep? And there are a lot of fleet retirement, so putting older aircraft out um, and then also um, across the board, there were staff that were laid off, uh, whether it's you know, pilots and cabin crew, but also across the ground handlers, CATSA, um, Customs, all of those people that, um, and many of them didn't come back to the industry. And so there's been a, a refreshing, both at a fleet level, as people have ordered new fleet to backfill um, and also at a labor level as um, a lot of new people have come into the industry so we've seen some real tightness and, and part of last year's issues is that they were lack of experienced people in the system um, we've seen strong demand for pilots and some very um, you know high pilot salary increases uh, as pilots have become more valuable in the in the rebound um, but uh, fundamentally people like to travel and so the demand stuff is coming back. Business may be less so uh, which is less important for us as a leisure carrier, but people like to travel. They like a deal and they like to travel. So, so that's exactly where Claire's sweet spot is, is that pricing sensitive leisure carrier. Uh, speak
1: to a, little be, speak to a little bit Speak to just the challenges of a third airline. What I mean by that, you've got established airlines like Air Canada and West in this domestic market. You have a Canada, a large country, but still a population that's quite small, with 40 million people. Um, Can this market sustain a third carrier and allow a third carrier like yours to continue to to grow and expand?
2: It's fundamentally different in our approach to the market. And so um, Canada previously, as you said, was dominated by the two big legacy carriers. Um, And... As a consequence, you know, quite high cost structures, quite high fares, people just didn't travel as much when it's $800 to fly for, you know, here to Calgary. um, You know, fewer people are going to want to do that. Our model is to keep our costs low by being efficient and simple and giving customers choice. Um, And by keeping our costs low, we can offer low fares um, on a sustainable basis. And so we're creating new demand. We often talk about, Our biggest competitor is the couch, you know, just getting people off their butts and getting out and seeing this beautiful country and seeing their friends and family. And so we're stimulating new demand.
1: Uh, Stephen, in regards to expansion, in regards to your airline, I think you were quoted as saying you wanted to go from 20 planes to eventually get to 50 planes. What's the timeline for something
2: like that? I would say 2027 is realistic. And for that, we call it F-50. That's Flair getting to 50 aircraft. And it's it's just a reflection of the ambition that we have for the business. Uh,
1: in regards to uh, so when you set up an airline, uh, how much of the focus is going to be domestic or the North American market? And how much of an emphasis would you place on more international travel, whether it be to Asia or to
2: Europe? I assume Flair will never fly to Asia or Europe. Um, it's uh, you know, really focused on the Canadian domestic market and then uh, the U.S, Mexico, Caribbean. and so um, it varies um, by season as well. In summer, we are uh, 85 to 90 percent of our seats will be flying in the domestic Canadian market, mm-hmm. And then come winter, um, well, the winter ahead of us, we'll have nearly 50 percent of our seats will fly down to warmer places. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that's US, Mexico, or Caribbean, as I say. So, but um, but no, we have no ambition to fly to Asia or, or
1: Europe. Is that just because strategically look, this is the market you want to grow in? You're going to f- keep a laser eye focus on your strategy and focus on, as you say, North America and domestic. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Even though some of some would argue that Asia and Europe would be a lot of lucrative markets there for you.
2: Um. They may be lucrative markets but I I think to be successful um, as an airline and in business generally you have to know what your sort of um, lane is you know pick a lane stay in the lane and our lane is is price sensitive leisure customers in Canada so to and from Canada domestically and also we have a a single aircraft type because that gives us um, nice simple uh, fleet we don't have multiple fleet types with multiple spare parts, multiple training. Um, Our aircraft fly out and back from a base every night, so they return to the same place. Um, And so the crews have to be able to get out and back on on one crew duty. And so it's just about keeping it simple, keeping it focused. And um, there may be money to be made in other markets, but we'll leave that to uh, to the others. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Um, In regards to just operating out of Canadian airports, uh, I'm curious in the past of this been you know other carriers have talked about uh, landing fees uh, and uh, airlines being treated as cash cows uh in regards to just the cost itself and a lot of these bigger airlines airports sorry you know um are uh, operated uh, as for-profit businesses or at least separate from government. Um, What would you like to see done in regards to spring greater competition in the airline industry moving forward so people do have a lot of choice uh, when they do travel beyond just the big two and wanting to, you know, attract more smaller carriers that at least provide choice for Canadians?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, airports have their part to play and they need to realize that not everyone wants the you know, high sort of chrome and, and marble and, and everything in, in the buildings. Actually, we need a functional uh, and simple pathway through the airport with some basic uh, amenities. But um, I was yesterday in, in Kitchener-Waterloo where they were launching their new bag system and front of house bags, back of house bag screening. Um, and it's a, it's a classic low cost terminal, um, really well suited to our, our business. But at the same time, we operate, um, you know, most of our capacity uh, by numbers of flights would, would be out of Vancouver and um, Toronto, Pearson. And we have great relationships with those two airports, but they are in many ways built for a, a different operation. I think everyone in the system has the obligation to keep their costs as efficient as possible because we see price elasticity. You know, prices go up, demand goes down. Um, Economics 101 actually was true. And so um, that's, you know, a dollar here, a dollar there doesn't seem to matter, but it actually hits demand. So everyone's responsible for keeping costs efficient.
1: There are a lot of uh, carriers around around the world. Uh, You see markets that are growing significantly, Asia being one, um, as the the nations uh, on that continent continue to grow, whether it be China or India or Southeast Asia. Uh, there's different models in Europe as well and in the U.S. U.S. Are there one or two airlines you admire uh, that, I don't know, if Flair models itself after, but you like their business model because they do try to keep it simple and make sure uh, consumers, number one, have a choice, but also keep costs down. Are there any airlines around the world that you admire would you know feel there's perhaps something you can learn from as, as a CEO for Flair?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think Ryanair, to me, is the gold standard. Um, you know, they've got... More than 500 aircraft, um, and they operate like a Swiss watch. You know, they are absolutely the, the gold standard for me about keeping it simple, keep the costs low, keep the prices low. Uh, I worked for three years for Wizz Air, which is another very big and successful ultra-low-cost carrier in Europe, and again, very, very disciplined um, in sticking to the formula. Um, so I've got great admiration for them as well. In the US, you know, we see Frontier, we see Spirit is doing a great job. And there are others in, in Asia as well. So for us, it's the the basic ULCC ultra low cost carrier formula, and just sticking to that.
1: Can you do that in Canada with a large geographical footprint like ours, basically forty million people spread over five time zones?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, the the every geography is different. Um, but for example, at Wizz Air, the average length of flight was. Only slightly less than what it is for us here at Flair. Um So every every market is slightly nuanced, but um, again, back to those things. What do people love? People love to travel, and people love a deal. And so, if you can actually offer that, um, then you know, your aircraft will be full. And uh, our flights, you know, ninety percent low factor in April, ninety in May, ninety in June. So it's um, there's no problem attracting people.
1: Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it, and all the best to you this summer season. All right, let's talk sanctuary schools. Now, school is out, of course, but I'm sure there'll be many uh, family inquiring uh, for many districts in regards to sanctuary schools in BC, BC. Usually in the summertime, that's when people start inquiring about uh, sanctuary schools. What what does it mean? Well, assume if a, if a family is living in, in your community and they're going through sort of an immigration system or a bureaucratic immigration system that can take many months, sometimes many years to approve uh, people's residency. Well, what's happening here is if they are stuck in a bureaucratic uh, mode with the government in some capacity, sometimes these uh, people's children do not go to school they'll be sitting at home for many, many months. And what sanctuary schools do with a designation, it signals the district's commitment to protecting undocumented students, and especially if they don't have any residency documentation. That basically means even if your parents are going through immigration hassles, uh, the children can still attend school. Well, New Westminster School District was the first in BC to adopt a sanctuary schools policy in 2017. So the other school districts in BC are now looking at that policy. Joining me now to discuss The sanctuary school policy is Maya Russell, chair of the New Westminster School Board. Maya, thank you for joining us today.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Talk to me a little bit about uh, sanctuary schools. Why did uh, New Westminster uh, adopt this policy back in 2017?
4: Yeah, well, thank you so much for your interest in the policy. Um, It's one we're really proud of. Uh, I wasn't on the board at the time. I was actually a parent um, supporting a refugee family at that time, um, so I was, I was lucky to be at the table for the discussions. Um, and it was, I think, just an acknowledgement that um, the right to education is, is an international human right. It's actually in the Declaration of the Rights of the Child. And some, um, some folks in the community came forward to say that, it was a, that, uh, that access to schools was a problem. So it was something that the board at that time uh, wanted to address.
1: When you say access to schools were problems, why was it a problem at that time?
4: Well, there's a lot of fear for there are uh there are more people than we realize who are living and working in our communities but have uh, precarious or no immigration status and that happens for a number of reasons you know often people have have, have come here uh, in good faith on a work visa um and things have fallen through with an employee or or other reasons our our immigration um policies in Canada, as I have come to learn are are a lot tougher than I think we realize um and so there are people who fall through the cracks and there's kids uh waiting at home you know spending their their day at home when when the other children in their neighborhoods are going to
1: school uh and so you were hearing a lot of these stories i'm assuming where mom mom and dad are in the midst of this uh immigration black hole so the kids were literally were just staying at home waiting for this never-ending process to end
4: That's right. And I would say it's not a lot of families. It's actually a very small number of families, but you know, for those, for those families, it means the world. Um, and people have often gone through a lot to get here or to be at the position that they're in. Um, and having a child able to start school is so important to that family kind of regaining some normalcy in, in their life. Um, it's, it's, as we know, you know we're at the end of the school year for my family, and I can tell you we miss that structure and routine, although you know we love uh we love being able to hang out and and read and go to the park but um but it's really, really critical for families
1: mhm mm-hmm. what's the age group so far of, of the group that you generally that you're attracting are these kids at the elementary stage or are these kids uh, at a high school age?
4: It's all ages actually um and as i say it's it, again it's a very small number, so in this school year. We were able to register about 25, fam- uh, 25 students from 20 families, um, and they really range from kindergarten right up to to, to grade 12. Uh, we had a student graduate last year who had who had registered through the sanctuary
1: school. And why are in regards to the parents, though? So this is immigration challenge that they're dealing with. Is it's it's something in in the case of a work permit, or like is it? Are they refugees specifically, or is it a case of just uh, someone who's emigrated here on a work work visa, work permit of some sort, and is just waiting for the process to sort of work its way through?
4: Yeah, there's a number of reasons why people can sort of fall through the cracks of our of our immigration policy. They may have come in as temporary um, temporary workers on a on a work visa, which can be tied to an employer, and then. You know that employment relationship uh, doesn't work out. You know there are unfortunately some unscrupulous employers who take advantage of people, um, and then they become you know precarious when they're not when they when they lose that status from that employer. Um, but regardless of the reasons, um, what what we felt was important was um, you know we're not we're not here uh, to judge that. There's another level of government obviously that has to do that work and and is involved with borders and 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 security. Um, but when we know that, you know, there's a child sitting in a basement uh, during the school day who's missing out on learning, who in almost all cases is going to remain in this community, you know, these are our neighbors, these kids are growing up with our kids, and they're, they're going to, you know, grow up and live and work in our community, and it just made no sense that they be excluded from school.
1: Uh, do other districts have a similar program?
4: There's been quite a bit of work done, and I should say... This work has been led for years by community-based advocates, people who've been working with these families. Um, Sanctuary Health is one. Watari in Surrey is another who have put in a huge amount of time advocating for families at, at all sorts of districts. And there's sort of, um, varying success. We are, you know, we were pleased to see that the BC School Trustees Association has done some work with the Ministry of Education around some guidelines because, um, this is actually something that should be happening in every district. It is, you know, a fundamental human right. Uh, it is actually protected in the School Act. The only requirement to participate in school is that somebody is what's called ordinarily resident, which means really you've been here for six months or, or more, and, and this is where you live. There isn't somewhere else that you can that you can go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, that really covers all of these kids. And so, yeah, we are really hopeful. We we see a lot of improvement. Um, we do hear from from folks in the community that there are still areas where where they are struggling to get kids into school and um and it can in some cases take just a huge amount of advocacy um to you know to help a to help staff, is, you know, see and understand that, that this has changed and this is, you know, fully funded mm-hmm. um, and these students should be enrolled. Um, but, but it is, uh, yeah, we are making
1: some headway. We are speaking to Maya Russell, chair of the new Westminster School District. We're talking about the district uh, being uh, a sanctuary uh, district uh, or schools uh, that have been uh, focused on a policy since May of 2017 that has allowed children whose families may be stuck in immigration limbo to at least come to school uh, and to be learning uh, while they wait uh, for immigration to do their thing. Uh, Maya, I'm curious, uh, anecdotally, because you are involved right from the beginning, what kind of impact when these kids do come to school and are consistently going to school, what kind of, uh, how do you see them acting, interacting? Uh, Give me a sense of what you see with these students when they are in school.
4: Yeah, it's you in almost all cases, you would never know that this was a student uh, with precarious uh, status, and that's really how we would want it to be. Um, I can tell you from the, for the one family that I'm close to that um, having that child be able to go out the door uh, in the morning with their backpack like all the other kids in the neighborhood mm-hmm. um, was so important to their sense of self-esteem. And, and conversely, you know, the experience of being excluded, unfortunately, like quite tragically being sent away and said, you know, your documents aren't valid here, this was a number of years ago, um, was so crushing, so crushing and, and left a really lasting feeling of, you know, not belonging, not being wanted that's really taken years to counteract. Um, so yeah, the I guess the other thing is there is fear. Um families do remain fearful when they are in this really unfortunate um situation where where they are they they do have reason to be to be scared of of deportation. Um so we the part of the work that we do is is education so that staff in schools understand um it's we're it's not our position. Um, we're, we're not immigration border guards. Um, we, we don't share information. We don't offer information about, about people's private business. You know, we're, not also, we're also not asking, you know, families about, have you filed your tax return? You know, um, are, you, are you updated on, all, you know, all your other regulatory requirements? You know, not to make light of it, but, um, but we just want schools to be, you know, safe and secure places for kids to come and learn. So mm-hmm. we, we do quite a bit of work around um, providing safety.
1: Do most of these kids end up staying?
4: Yeah, we've had, um, uh, I'm not sure of all of the cases, but in a number we had, I think, about 10 students who've registered over the last couple of years who, who happily were able to then regularize their status and, and work with us to get their documentation up up to up to the standard and so there we we sort of consider them they're no longer enrolled under this policy and that those are really happy stories because that just eliminates a lot of fear and worry in the family that's something they don't have to deal with and they can go on to all the other pressures that working families uh, are facing Mm -hmm. but yeah mostly they have we've had a few families though who have had to for other for work reasons or other reasons move on um, to study it in a in a different district
1: Um, you said the numbers have increased. I know it's about 25 students right now, which is still a small number in the grand scheme of things. Why do you think the numbers are increasing?
4: Well, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in the field, but I know, uh, Jazz, when I look around our community, I see an awful lot of people, you know, working and delivering the services that we all rely on. Um, the businesses. um, We're in desperate need of workers, of course. And so, you know, we know that that immigration is where we get a lot of workers and and newcomers have been critical to to our story in Canada and certainly here in New Westminster. Um, So I'm not sure why maybe more are precarious. What I hope is that Families are feeling more safe to come forward so where it was sort of the first year we had six students and then 13 and then this year I think 25 So we just hope uh, that we're reaching that we're reaching all and that you know more and that hopefully now every every kid who should be of, You know who is of school age is coming in the school door every morning
1: um, Do you think there is a need to be working with immigration and I mean collecting private information but making sure they're aware that you have a sanctuary school program or policy, and perhaps other districts as well, that, that more of that needs to happen if you are seeing these numbers already increasing bit by bit?
4: Yeah, I certainly do want uh, families to know that your immigration status shouldn't be a barrier to a child accessing their their human right to an education. You know, their children are not responsible for the choices or situations that their families, that their parents, land themselves in, and that was a, that was a decision made at the UN after the Second World War, and I think it really stands the test of time. So we certainly want families to know, you know, that that should not be a barrier. Kids shouldn't be punished for for what uh, what's going on with their parents, and we do try to get the word out through community organizations who are working with newcomers.
1: Final question to you. Um, how close has this work been with groups like Mosaic and some of the other counselling services that, um, that you've been working with? I mean, did they come in right from the beginning or did you have to slowly build that relationship with them?
4: It was really um, community organisations working with newcomers who really brought this to us. So as I said, Thanks for Help, Wattari are some of the organisations. Uh, Mosaic has also been critical. So that's a, that's a non-profit delivers to newcomers in our schools through the Settlement Workers in Schools program through the federal government. And, um, and yeah, connecting, connecting students with that service is so critical. That's something we do from day one when, we, when they come to central registration. And um, we actually have Mosaic right in our central registration welcome center. So we can, they can help us sometimes with translation services and we can connect them right away with, with those supports. Um, and they can support the family uh, outside of school as well
1: well it's a fabulous program and i'm great and i'm just glad that it's working out for these kids and these families as well and it's vitally needed really appreciate your time today maya thank you so much
4: thank you very much for bringing it to light
1: intermittent fasting. Of course, it's taken off in popularity in recent years as an alternative to more traditional weight loss advice, uh, including counting calories. calories. Now, intermittent fasting is essentially time-restricted eating, where you limit what you eat uh, to a specific window of time. So, you know, you eat for six hours out of a day or eight hours out of the day, rest of the time, you're not eating. Now, some research suggests this can be successful for weight loss in the short term because people end up eating less, but it has been less clear how well, it works over a longer stretch of time. Well, a study published recently by the University of Illinois Chicago looked at people who lost weight with intermittent fasting and asked, can they maintain the weight loss? What I mean to talk about uh, intermittent fasting and this study is Danny Renouf. She's a dietitian at Saint Paul's Hospital. Danny, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Jaz. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, intermittent fasting—it's uh, one of those terms that uh, you know all of us, uh, to a certain degree, probably the last four or five years, it's come into quite a bit of fashion in regards to, we'll know somebody who's attempting it, has done it. A lot of people speak very well of it. Uh, This new study uh, says, uh, from my understanding, looks like uh, people are able to keep the weight off if they stick with intermittent fasting. How do you read the the study?
3: Well, you know, intermittent fasting has been shown to lead to weight loss, what we have also seen is that the weight eventually does come back um, beyond the point at which the study uh, you know, has been continued. So eventually, unless you are intermittent fasting for the rest of your life, the weight does come back. The reason that I think intermittent fasting is problematic is because it's not sustainable. Many people can do it for some time, mm-hmm. but it's very, very difficult to maintain for a long period of time. It's also problematic because it can result in deficiencies, right? When we look at metrics, weight loss is such an obsessive metric for so many of us, and we really care about dropping the number on the scale. And in that pursuit, we might forget that we are deficient in many vitamins, nutrients. I've just been reading that people who are intermittent fast will potentially be deficient in protein and fiber and nutrients like calcium. So when we are looking for a diet and we're looking for 5% weight loss to 10% weight loss for good health outcomes, there are certainly other options uh, to pursue other than intermittent fasting uh, for more sustainable weight loss.
1: Now, just just to stay on that intermittent fasting just for a moment. So uh, I guess the study says you can keep the weight up, but only if you sustain it, it probably, as it looks to here, uh, for a very long time as part of your lifestyle. But as you say, for many people that's very difficult when when you have a set time for eating all the time.
3: Exactly and you know other things that may happen is eventually your energy stores you know tap out and it's so important if you're trying to keep the weight off to have good activity levels. So initially people might say I feel more energetic but once you start to develop um, some deficiencies if you're not choosing the right foods during your eating period then uh, eventually you're going to lose steam and not want to exercise as much and not want to do those healthy lifestyle, you know, movement activities, which are so important for overall health. So I think intermittent fasting just misses the mark in the sense that it's lo- just looking purely at weight loss. And it's not really looking at a long-term um, goal-setting or sustainable planning for, for healthy lifestyle.
1: So if, if somebody does want to take off 10, 20 pounds, what kind of things should they be focusing on?
3: Sure. So that's a really wonderful question. Um, I actually have found and have read that smaller, more frequent meals from a science perspective and uh, actual application perspective are the way to go. So... What you want to do is front load, so eat more smaller frequent meals during the most active part of your day where you're using energy, so that's during your work day, uh, when you're moving around, Um, You know, if you have your exercise, timing your snacks and your meals around that is is really, really important. And really the biggest gap is that most of us Canadians are not meeting our fruit and vegetable requirements, so eating more fruits and vegetables means you're getting more fiber. That fiber is causing fullness without giving you the calories. So it's very, very important to focus on half your plate being vegetables, making sure you choose fruited and snacks. Uh, it's really, really important to include other high-fiber sources like whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes in your meals uh, to make sure you're getting enough fiber.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, as a dietitian, there always seems to be some new fad that comes forward, some new exercise, not exercise, but some some sort of... Uh, a method that will help you lose weight, whether it be intermittent fasting, whether it be keto, whether it be something else. Um, For you as a dietitian, I mean, it must be a constant uh, struggle to convince people that, look, there's another way to do it. It's slower, but it's the right way to go.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, people are frustrated. They're overloaded with information. I approach my clients with a great deal of compassion because we are all getting bombarded with so many messages And I wish just as much as my clients do that there was one magic bullet. But really, um, change is so personal. It's so individual. What matters to you is different than what matters to somebody else. And these diets just try to paint everybody with the same brush. And uh, ultimately, I think that's the fault is because none of these diets are individualized to really tap into the person's unique needs and what they need to help um, adjust their metabol- metabolism and what types of foods they need to eat to, to achieve good weight loss. That that takes time with a dietitian, with somebody who can sit down with you and go through things. And also, it takes time to set goals. Um, it's important to, to consider your environment as a whole when you're making changes like this. So it's, it's a bit more complicated than a diet.
1: In regards to uh, healthier living, uh, adequate weight staying active, are things getting better or worse in your mind? We talk a lot about it, um, but we also know that a society, the obesity level in society had been going up for a very long time. In your mind, what you see, are things getting better in regards to the message and people trying to lead, lead active lives, or are we still sort of in this downward trend?
3: You know, I'm always a cup-half-full kind of person, and huh. I think information is power, and we're definitely more wired uh, to What's current and what's happening in in research uh, in nutrition as people as consumers. So, I do think we're better off in the sense that I notice more people have more information, which is good. But again, teasing out what is relevant and what's important—that's that's a bit more um, of of a gap. And so, uh, I I would say you know the obesity epidemic is still a major major issue. I don't think the fast food industry is going to change. I think it's We just need to be smarter, be in the driver's seat, and make better choices for us within our capacity. And so um, I think people are are switched on to that. I I think people want to know, what can I do for myself? And so I I am seeing more of that in my practice.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of the fast food industry, one of the things you can, of course, purchase is Diet Coke or Diet uh, Soft Drinks and many other uh, food that uh, uh, have the um, uh, ingredient of aspartame. Now we are learning that the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is the World Health Organization's uh, cancer research unit, uh, they are poised to label aspartame as a potential carcinogen over the next couple of weeks. Uh, now uh, aspartame is, you know, as you know very well, a white odorless powder, a low-calorie artificial sweetener, which. Uh, I guess it's, uh, from what I'm reading is 200 times sweeter than sugar, um, but they are saying that they may label label it as a potential carcinogen sometime in July. Um, what are your thoughts on this?
3: Yeah, so as dietitians, we you know try to promote whole foods. We really, really want people to, as much as possible, try to eat foods that are not packaged because once the food is packaged you're looking at more processing. And when you're looking at more processing, you're looking at more chemical ingredients. And so to me, I think, you know, it's it's pretty scary to read a label that says this could cause cancer. You know, I think as a consumer, that's a, a scary label. I, I want people to feel in control and to, and to really say to themselves, I don't have to buy these packaged foods. I can assemble simple, unprocessed foods and still eat a nutritious and satisfying meal. and And again, if I need support around that, you know I know where to go. So I do appreciate that across the board, we need to eat less processed food. So I'm uh, kind of hopeful that, people are also starting to tap into that and, and not want to buy as much packaged or processed food as
1: possible. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, uh, when we go back to aspartame, there was a French study I was reading published in March last year that said it could increase the risk of cancer in people who consume it. There was a separate study published in December of last year and found that aspartame, which is found in like 5,000, I didn't realize 5,000 diet foods and drinks, was linked to anxiety in mice uh, as well. So the World Health Organization's cancer research unit is saying uh, or the news that we're getting certainly is that they're poised to label aspartame as a potential carcinogen Um, i hope that hopefully i guess that's a message to large companies fast food organizations as well that perhaps it's time to rethink uh, the issue of sweeteners moving forward
3: absolutely and i think you know people rely on these artificial sweeteners because some people are living with diabetes And we, you know, were given the claim that this was going to help lower blood sugars. But, you know, in a previous interview with you, we know that that's also not based on science. And uh, there are many complicated other side effects that come with consuming high quantities of aspartame. So again, um, I think the message is eat more fresh uh, fresh foods if you can. And try to keep your food choices as unprocessed Mm -hmm. as possible. So the fewer ingredients, the better.
1: Danny, thank you for your time today.
3: Thank you so much. Such a pleasure always to talk with you, Jazz.
1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at JazzJohalBC. Talk to you next time.